this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. So I think you're going to like this interview with Jim Beach. So Jim started American Computer Experience and sold it for $200 million, which, again, on the outset looks like a tremendous exit. Yet when I asked him, and you'll hear this in the interview, about his regrets, he had a long list of regrets, uh, starting with the fact that when starting new divisions of your company, it can actually, while increase your revenue, reduce the overall value of your business. He talks a lot about venture capital and the danger of accepting venture capital, um, talks about growth and how growing faster than your cash flow allows can really dilute your equity position. He talks about you know the perils of getting in bed with a very well-known kind of front of the magazine cover entrepreneur uh, and some things he wished he'd done differently on that front. Um, he talks about never accepting friends and family money, which goes counter to you know the traditional view that when you start a business, you seek your first round of uh, financing from friends and family. He also talks about how to avoid a huge legal bill when it comes to selling your business. So tremendous nuggets in here from Jim Beach. Enjoy the interview. Jim Beach, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you so much for having me. So tell me a little bit about American Computer Experience. Where did you get the idea for this company? Well, that's one of the things I am very proud of. I 100% blatantly copied the idea from someone else. Their company was called National, so we changed ours to American. They were computer in the middle also, and they were camp, and we changed that to experience. So we were a blatant 100% copy of someone else. They offered to sell us a franchise, and it was so outrageously expensive. I said, I could do it for one-tenth of that. I don't need to buy the franchise. And so I didn't started a company. And that's one of the things I really like to point out, John. I didn't have an original idea, but I really wanted to be an entrepreneur. I didn't have an original idea, but I really wanted to run my own business. So I copied someone else's idea. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I actually think it's really good advice for someone who wants to run a business, but hasn't been struck yet by that thunderbolt of lightning of you know creativity from God. Just go on Google and type in businesses to start and you can find something to copy. And that's what I did. One of the biggest misconceptions is you've got to have this amazing original idea. And, and of course, exactly. that's, that's oftentimes the biggest mistake, right? Because if it's never been done, chances are there's a reason for that. That is true. So, so what did American Computer Experience sell? What, what, was it the, what were you selling as a business? Well, that's an interesting question, the way you phrased that. We were selling happiness for children. We took kids that had never been happy before, kids that were not football players, not cheerleaders, did not have a best friend, did not smile, and through our programs, 
we made them happy. We gave them a best friend. They would come home from a summer with us laughing with a best friend, thinking they were the coolest kid on earth. And we did that through a lot of different ways. We ran summer camps to start. And when we started doing this, that's what we thought we were doing is just running summer camps. And we did computer camp, SAT camp, weight reduction camp, movie making camp, uh, you know, acting camp, anything not involving sports. And that was a very unique niche of kids. And we discovered that that kid, the kid who wants to go to a computer camp or a movie making camp, 99% of the time was not happy and inherently had not found their niche yet. And so when we learned to sell that to a mother, when we got on the phone with a mom and the mom thought they were calling to get their kid enrolled in camp. And we would say stuff like your kid's unhappy, isn't it? And yes. Yeah. How did you know your, your child doesn't have a best friend? Does he No. How did you know? Well, I was your child at all. My, all of a sudden, John, they would just start whipping out their credit card. They didn't care what it cost because we were providing them something that no one else in the world had ever said. I will make your kid happy. I don't know if you're a parent or not, John, but when someone says that to you and you're crying yourself to sleep at night because you know your child is inherently not happy. That parent is ecstatic to find a service like that. Mm, yeah. and so that's actually what we were selling was happiness and social uh, acceptance for kids that otherwise had not found their niche yet. It's such an amazing, amazing story. In, in our case, we have we have a, two kids, um, one who, who loves every sport known to man and the other who uh, loves music and, and loves working with he's out, you know, working on uh, woodworking things. And so, you know, they're so different and I can see how, a, a, you know, a child who doesn't tick every box on the sports, you know, you know, curriculum, uh, may get a little left behind by, by camps and so forth. So you, you did fill this amazing need. Talk about a growth of the business. So from startup to the point you took on venture capital, uh, how many years was that? And what did you get it up to by the, you know, before your first round of VC financing? Well, this is a really weird story, John. We did it completely backwards, and it was as ugly as can be. So we had a huge problem that we had two or $3 million of fiscal outlay before we could start a season. And that was really hampering our growth. And we finally met this guy who is famous. You have heard of him. He has been on the cover of the magazines that you read, John. And he offered to solve this problem for us. And in fact, he did. He supplied us with millions of dollars of hardware, software, things that we needed to run our various programs. And he got it all for us for free. And then he said, let's grow this company and blow it up. This company has huge possibilities. He was really into children and education and he was on the uh, California Board of Regents for their university system. And he said, let's go and grow this company huge. And at that point, we were at 26 physical locations and it just opened an online learning center as well. In the next year, we grew to 89 locations across the United States and three other countries as well. Uh, we put about a million dollars into our online learning center and we kept calling the man who I'm still not legally allowed to tell you his name. And I was like, you know, dude, where's the money? We're spending the money. We're building the thing that you told us to build. You said you would go raise us this money. Where's the money? And he, the phone would go directly to voicemail and I would turn on 
entertainment tonight, John. And I would see him at Stad at the races at Formula One with some Hollywood playmate, not playmate, a Hollywood superstar who eventually won an Academy Award. So that might help you figure out who it is. They were dating at the time. He was too busy dating and being in Europe and being rich and being famous to actually deal with raising the money. And all of a sudden, about five years into the business, so 1999, we woke up $10 million in debt. And our savior guy who had arranged millions of dollars in stuff for us just wasn't returning our telephone calls. And we eventually had to sue him to get him out of the company. We had given him a, a you know, a stake in the ownership and had to fire him. He was on our board and we had some legal issues that we had to solve. And once we got done with all of that, I was $10 million in debt, John, and looking at losing my house and everything I had. I was pregnant at the time with my second child and had to go home and tell my pregnant wife that we had 28 days to move out of our house because the bank was repossessing it. Wow. So how did you get... Ten million dollars in debt. So accomplishment. That is an incredible accomplishment. Yeah, I mean, you you can understand how a a big, you know, big time entrepreneur with five exits behind them could drop ten million dollars on a deal. But this was your first business, as I understand it. Um, How did the bank? Only twenty four when I started it. So at this point, I'm twenty nine, literally about to lose everything. Well, the bank gave us a lot of money based on year-to-year cash flow so they could guesstimate what our cash flow was going to be. So we had a pretty good banking relationship where they would advance us a couple million dollars to get through our marketing season and to you know get all of the seasonal things done. A lot of people advanced us money because of the name of the guy I can't tell you about. Let's just call him Fred so we'll have a name. Uh, Fred The name Fred got us a lot of credit and a lot of people would advance us services and things like that. And we had been in business long enough that we had credit with all of our locations. Our locations, I haven't told you this part of the the story yet. Our locations were at the best university in whatever city we were in. So places like MIT, Stanford, Georgetown, UCLA, SMU, Emory, Uh, University of Michigan, Sorbonne, Cambridge, Oxford, brand name schools that everyone has heard of is where we were located. And we had been at so many of those places. You know, we started off at MIT and Stanford. And so we had an amazing reputation in the industry. I would go to Amherst or somebody like that and say, we want to run a program. They would say, great, we would run a program. And then they would send us a bill for $400,000 which we didn't have the money to pay. And so it was actually a combination of things that allowed us to get, you know, that in debt. But I, I, I think it, I think I deserve awards just for being able to get $10 million in debt. <laughs> I, think, I so. think that's pretty impressive. So how did you get out of it? How did you, you, you raise money at some point? It sounds like, exactly. how, where'd you go? You know, along the way, Fred had introduced us to some venture capitalists and it was always really embarrassing. We would go to Seattle, go to Redmond, uh, pull into Paul Allen, Vulcan Ventures, walk in. They would say, hey, Fred, how are you doing? What are you doing here? Well, I want to introduce you to Jim. Well, you know, Paul's not here right now. I wish you had called ahead, the venture capitalist would say, and made an appointment. But he was the type of guy who could literally walk into Vulcan Ventures and get a meeting with no appointment. 
And so we had met a lot of people like that and met some people at Comdex. You know, he was introducing us around. He was, as I said, he was pretty good for the first year or so. And then I am, you know, here in my little hole that I've dug myself and I would call back Vulcan Ventures and say, you probably don't remember me, but Fred introduced me to you nine months ago. And the first thing out of their mouth would be, have you gotten rid of him yet? And I was so taken back. I was like, yeah, this man's famous. He's on the cover of Wired. He's dating an Academy Award winner. And the first thing out of your mouth is, we don't trust the man. Have you gotten rid of him yet? And when I was finally able to call these venture capitalists and say, we we have gotten rid of him. We have concluded our lawsuits. We have you know, come to terms with each other. Paperwork is signed. They were all very interested in speaking to us until they found out that we were $10 million in debt. And that's a pretty hard thing to explain to a venture capitalist. You know, We spent the money and now we want to raise the money to pay for our spending. It's the exact opposite of what you're supposed to do. And at this point, it's starting to get closer and closer to that April 2000 time period when the market bubble starts to burst. And we're starting to actually talk about raising money in a post bubble burst environment where I am literally upside down. I am worth negative $10 million. My company deserves to be put into bankruptcy and I'm out there trying to raise money to, uh, to save my family house. And after a year of 1000 rejections, uh, you know, a hundred people laughing us out of the room, we finally were able to find a corporate partner so to speak. So there was only one childhood education company bigger than us at that time. And that was a company out of Dallas that did cheerleading uh, programs. They do all of the uniforms for cheerleading around the country. They have the big event at Disney. And this is important, the Disney connection. I'll talk about that in a minute. The if you know a uh, hundred schools want to compete, they all go down to Disney, and there's a huge cheerleading competition. They were the people running those sort of competitions nationwide. If you ever watched a cheerleading thing on TV with a cheerleading competition, those were the people who uh, were running those sort of things. So it was a big, big hundred million dollar a year company, and we approached them and. For a long time, there was a discussion about merging the two companies, and we got involved with the board and everything. And finally, the uh, chairman of the board called one day and said, we've decided not not to invest. And at that point, that was pretty much my last straw. I, I didn't really have any other options then other than to close the doors. And about five minutes later, the CEO of the cheerleading company called and said, well, I was the one who wanted to do this. The board voted me down. I have decided I'm going to quit cheerleading company. I would like to come and join your company, and I can bring the money to do it personally uh, through his connections. And so we brought him on and were able to raise money through through that in two various steps. We did uh, a big chunk at first and then did a little smaller chunk uh, about six months later. But in the end, we were about we raised about nine, nine and a half million dollars, something in that ballpark, and we're able to save the company. Jim, and- how, Jim, help me understand something. So, so you you're out there with all the passion. I can just hear it in your voice. You're obviously an incredible salesperson, incredible advocate for this company. A thousand, you know, rejections. What was it that this former CEO brought to to your company that 
it sounds like they kind of flipped the switch and, you know, immediately kind of were able to raise $9 million. Like what, what did they bring that you didn't have? Uh, I don't know. Other than just the money, nothing good. But, uh, it, he ha- but it wasn't the money. He didn't have it. Per- he didn't write you personally a check for $9 million, right? He had the connections, which enabled him to raise the Is that, am I getting that correct? Right. And he raised it mostly through the same people that had invested in the cheerleading company. So it was mostly his his network of, I don't want to say friends, but business associates that were willing to follow him and invest in whatever he wanted to do. And what chunk of the company did you have to give up for that nine million bucks? Well, remember, we were upside down at this point. And so I think if we had given up 100%, that would have been uh, 100 very realistic. In the end, we were really, really proud that we only gave up 45%. So we, my partner and I, a guy named Doug and I, and some investors that we had brought along earlier when we, you know, when we started getting into trouble, we started bringing in some angel investors just to pay the bills and keep the lights on there for a while. And those, you know, the angels and then my founder and I ended up owning 55% at this point. Got it. And so, you know, Take us up to the point where you eventually did uh, sell the company. I understand there were five different divisions by this point that uh, maybe walk us through that. Right. So the the new CEO came on and immediately blew up and left within six months. And so so you, was, you gave him the CEO title. Not only did he yes. come and join. Okay. So he was the CEO. Right. Oh, okay. Oh, and, but he left six months later and this is uh, John, this is just the weirdest thing on earth to become an Episcopal priest. And he left the company literally to become an Episcopal priest, but he, he brought the money, saved the company and six months later was gone to join the priesthood. And he's now Episcopal minister at one of the largest churches in Texas, is my understanding. And so uh, I found myself in charge again with new connections through him. As I said, Disney plays into this. Uh, We started a division that ran huge events for companies like Disney. So say you're Disney and you have 200 softball teams showing up for a softball tournament. Someone has to manage that. And interestingly, Disney didn't know how. Disney is good at some stuff, but managing 12,000 kids and making sure that 12,000 kids get fed in 35 minutes wasn't one of their specialties. And so we got contracts like that. We got contracts with the Boys and Girls Clubs of America, 5,000 locations. Someone had to turn the lights off at the end of the night and lock the door. Uh, We got a contract with them. We started an online division that I mentioned earlier. At that point, we had grown that to, I don't know, $10, $12 million a year in annual revenue, all from kids paying monthly subscriptions to have access to an online community. Um, And so at that point, we had grown way past summer camps and were doing anything in educating kids that the system didn't seem to have a a niche for. So we were doing year-round education programs. We were doing things in the weekend. We had 
uh, Christmas experiences for families. Anytime that the kids were not in school, after school programs, we had something available for them at some location. We even started some of our own brick and mortar locations, which was basically like a Kumon Learning Center or something like that, where the kids could come after school and we would just basically keep them alive and entertained until the parents came and picked them up several hours later. Um, that's my specialty, John, is keeping kids alive. <laughs> well, it's good. But, so it's, it's, but it's not funny because we, you know, eventually we got so big that we had 100,000 kids a day in various programs that I was running around the world. And so the first, you know, when we started off, the first year we had 96 kids. We did 56,000 and 96 kids. It was a challenge for us. Five or six years later, I was sitting down with my insurance agent, and the insurance agent said, how many kids are you going to have this summer? And I was like, yeah, you know, 75,000. And he got out his calculator, and he was like, you know, that's 12 broken legs, 19 visits to the hospital, and 14 first menstrual cycles. And he looked at me, and he was like, you ready for that? And I was just like, oh, my God. No, I'm not ready for that. I'm 27, and I have to deal with first menstrual cycles for some kid from Dubuque. You know, it was a nightmare. And so that really became, you know, when we get down to it, we were really good at making kids happy. But our number one job was to keep them alive so that dad could pick them up on the way home from work. Yeah. You know? So uh, we joke about it now, but I used to carry around a, a cell phone in the early days of portable cell phones, that was an 800 number that only my directors would call. And every time it called, it meant someone was on the way to the hospital. Um, you know, so it's not, that's not much of a lifestyle to wait around for the next disaster. And that was my job was to solve the disaster. And sometimes it would be that, uh, so bad that I would get on an airplane and fly to Stanford because I'm burning one of their buildings down. Or I would fly to Boston into MIT because I have flooded the MIT computer lab. <laughs> you know, all sorts of fun little things that happen along the way. So what was the event? Do you remember the day that you decided, okay, I'm, I'm ready to sell this thing? Well, it was not really a decision that I made. Uh, the venture, well, the, the group of investors that came in, which did include some venture capital. There was some VC money in that uh investment of the seven and a half million, I think about four and a half of that was a VC firm out of uh, either Dallas or Houston or something like that. And by the way, interestingly enough, about five years after this, that VC firm went out of business. You know, so in the 2005 to 2010 period, we went from 2000 venture capitalists in the United States back down to 500, which is, I think, fairly close to where it is now, um, according to the what is it, the National Association of Venture Capitalists or something like that. But anyway, uh, so there was some VC money in there, and they decided for us that when their golden boy, the CEO, left, I mentioned that, you know, when uh, the guy left to become a priest, they came to me within a couple of months and said, you know, what, what is our exit strategy? How are we going to get out of this? And I had been wondering about that myself for years. You know, it was – in many, many ways, a lifestyle business on hyper, hyper steroids. It was sort of like owning a dry cleaner. 
it involved me. I needed to be there. I was the face of the company. People expected to see me on live patch and videos to every location around the world. I was the face of the business. And it was all, it was very hard to figure out how to sell. Um, as a group, as an entire company, it was very hard to go to the marketplace and say, well, we're a little bit of this industry. We're a little bit of this industry. We're a little bit online. We're sort of a little bit like a retail franchise for kids. We're sort of like Kumon. We're sort of, you know, we weren't, we were too many weird things put together under the package of taking care of kids. And there wasn't a natural buyer for us. And so the venture capitalist and myself, we got together and we took us a long time to figure out what to do. We spent about six months working on strategy and we realized that the best thing to do was to break the company up. There were natural buyers for each of the divisions of the company. So the summer camp, the pure summer camp piece was sold, guess what, to the cheerleading people. They wanted the pure summer camp. They didn't want all the rest of the stuff. The online piece was sold. Do you remember, John, oh, about 15, 20 years ago, there used to be some company that would mail you a CD-ROM every single day in America. I don't know. You're up in Canada. Yeah, AOL. You're not allowed to say that word. Oh. <laughs> um, but anyway, a company that used to mail you CD-ROMs every day was really interested on our in our online uh, kids center. And so... That made a very natural buyer for our online piece. Uh, they happened to buy it, and a day later they turned it off and killed the whole thing. But you know, at that point they owned it. Um, the boys and girls management, the boys and girls clubs of America management piece, we actually put that together, and five of my employees, five of my senior employees, bought that piece from us and paid us out over the next three years. So we had these five different areas of business that each one were very profitable but and you know a good business but together kind of presented too much of a weird hybrid mix that no one wanted and so the decision was made to go out and find different buyers for each of the distinct business units and that's what we did and we were able to sell them all on one day uh, interestingly enough, John, I also got divorced on that same day, and a week later I had surgery and spent 90 days in the hospital with stomach surgery. So I was getting divorced. I knew I needed major surgery that was going to get me out of the loop for as much as six months, and my investors wanted out. And so it was one of those situations where I had no choice. Um, my ex-wife wanted a bunch of money. I had to pay her off. I had to, you know, so we put the company on the market. And about six months after we started, we were able to wrap it all up on one single day. Um, I cried as I left. And I don't know if it was crying tears of happiness because I was divorced, crying tears of sadness because I was divorced, crying tears of happiness because I had a bunch of money in my pocket or crying because I had to write a check to my ex-wife for divorce. You know, so it was one of the most emotional experiences that you can ever imagine, but it 100% felt like I was selling my arm. You know, it felt like I had sold one of my children. I have four children, John, so I know exactly what you are talking about with your kids. And I'm a woodworker too. So one of your sons and I would be uh, compadres on that. Um, it was like selling one of my kids. 
Interesting, interesting. So one thing that, that strikes me as, as fascinating is that you were able to get all five of these deals to close on the same day. What, the, p- people listening are, are scratching their head at that and saying, well, how on earth did you do that? So is, what's the backstory there? Well, it wasn't that hard. We were able to force certain things into certain days. You know, so the group of my own executives that were buying for me, I told them it's going to be on March 3rd you know, because of the other deals and deal with it. Um, the, the, that company that sends CD-ROMs every day, they were they could care less when it was going to close because they were going to turn the thing off. We didn't know that, but they did. And I kind of feel like they lied to us a little bit, but anyway, they, they got their own just due there. Um, so they didn't care when it closed either. The cheerleading people really didn't care. And we had one lawyer doing all of the work for us doing five deals for us at the same time. So that lawyer had the ability to say, okay, the, the closing's March 3rd. And everyone was like, okay. You know? So it really, that really was the, getting it to uh, coincide was not one of the hardest pieces. Um, what was the toughest, what was the toughest part of that exit? Uh, surviving the year before the exit, I think. Um, you know, the fact that that was part of our corporate history was so impressive to people. We didn't have any trouble selling any of the divisions. It was easy at that point. We got good prices for all of them. Uh, the fact that we had lived through, you know, near certain death and had come back impressed people. And, you know, at that point we were veterans of the, the fundraising and all of that game and all that silliness, you know, so it wasn't, uh, particularly difficult. Uh, I, the hardest part was getting the divorce lawyers to go along with it. And, and why was that tricky? Uh, she just wanted her money. You know, she didn't want to wait a month for her money. Interesting. You know, they, what do they say that the three D's of exit are, you know, divorce, disease, and, or death, death I think. And, and so. I had two. <laughs> I had two of those. Interesting. And so maybe talk a little bit, if you could, about the, the, the different, you know, valuations for the different divisions. So you've got this management team that, you know, the, the management company that's doing the Boys and Girls Club of America, where it's an internal sale to five employees. How did the valuation of that company, either on a multiple of earnings or revenue, uh, compare with the online division and then compare with the summer camps division? Like, could, are there any lessons there in terms of how companies are valued based on the three experiences? Well, you know, it was post-bubble burst, so we were no longer in the era of a company with zero revenue is worth a billion dollars, right? You remember that silliness? We were post that, so that's a little bit unfortunate. Uh, Most of our things were valued straight up, you know, three to five times revenue, uh, our earnings. You know, it was easy. You know, summer camp is a very traditional business. It's going to get valued at the low end of the traditional spectrum, three to five times earnings, you know, uh, of EBITDA. And so that was pretty easy to value. That wasn't hard. The online division to AOL, they were still believing in the pre-bubble mentality. And so we were able to get a... Oh, 25 multiple there. Um, 
And again, they turned it off the next day. So I think that they would have paid a lot more because they were just eliminating competition. That's the entire reason for that purchase. So we had a, a huge mix. We had multiples of three for some of the company and multiples of 25 for other pieces of the company. You know, at that point, you were supposed to be taking brick and mortar and closing it down, you know, just to put all of your eggs in the online retail basket. And we were this weird hybrid. And so we got treated as a hybrid. And I do think that's one of the you know reasons we were able to sell is because we were willing to go back to traditional valuations, you know, good old Michael Porter, the competitive advantages of companies type, you know, 1990 type valuations and go, we're worth three times EBITDA, you know. You know, we're not Coca-Cola at 20 times EBITDA. We're not Amazon at 100 times EBITDA. We're worth three times our EBITDA, just like you would value a dry cleaning company or a restaurant. And I think the fact that we were humble at that point and willing to, you know, we had been through so much before and had, you know, luck, the sense that we were just lucky to be alive and not living on the street at this point, that I think that that sense of hubris to say, our business isn't worth $100 million. You know, we think that it is, but, you know, a, a traditional brick-and-mortar summer camp business, even though it's in sexy places with sexy sponsors like Intel and Microsoft, it's still only worth three to five times revenue. Um, EBITDA, again, you mean. EBITDA, yes, thank you. Um, the online thing, that's a different story. So the fact that we broke it up, really, really facilitated the sale. And I think the fact that I was honest and said, eh, I'm not I'm not crazy here. I'm not trying to get 50 times. I, I'm satisfied to get 1990 type valuations. Got um, Talk us through the the splitting up of the companies. This is interesting. So let's say you've got a you've got an entrepreneur out there who's got two very different sides of their of their business. Uh, one would 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 likely acquire would be company A. The other would likely company B. Um, you know, with the sheer, with the investors that you had, did you did you break up the company formally into legal entities and then give shares on an equal basis based on their investment to each of the companies, or did you keep it together? for the purposes of their investment and just sell them as separate parts downstream. I'm trying to get my head around that. Yeah. The legal issue here was a big challenge for us. And we probably spent a hundred thousand dollars just on the exact question that you asked. We started down the path of dividing the company up and probably a month or two into it. None of the purchasers seemed to care what they were buying. You know, it was very clear. We're buying the online division. I don't care if it's, a separate com uh, company or if I'm buying a division of company XYZ. No one really cared. And so in the end, we just said, oh, the hell with it. Let's not do the dividing up. We left it as one entity and sold it that day. And it was very clear in the paperwork. You're buying this division and it actually listed employee names. These are the employees that come with this company. Um, at that point, though, we bought out one of the things we had to do was buy out our lease for copiers, automobiles, and real estate. And so we did take a little bit of money off of the one of the larger payments from the, that CD delivery company and uh, pay off all of those leases and had to buy some of them out. Um, but other than that, the lawyers were able to pretty much wrap it up in such a way that 
XYZ bought this chunk of the company and it was very like 12 computers all of the files on server XYZ at this hosting company and this database of 12,000 current users you know I mean it was very very specific and so that's one of the things that sort of made it a slow deal in the end was that it had to be very, very detailed. And then we probably went back and forth on a list of assets for three months. An important piece was that there were no liabilities to divide up. Um, the company at that point had zero debt and we paid off all the banks and everything. So there were no liabilities to take care of other than those leases that we bought our way out of. Got it. And so, were the buyers buying the assets of the of the company, or were they were they buying the shares of the company? Do you do you recall the legal structure? Uh, they they got the share. Uh, you know, there there were shares sold. So you know, I owned a hundred shares, and my hundred shares went toward five different people. And those twenty two shares that one guy would buy came with this employee, this computer, this database. You know. So they did end up buying the shares. And if I remember correctly, this was a while ago, in the end, we ended up with like one share left over. And uh, I I'm not even sure who owns that one share now. So I think that that company, you know, I quit paying the, the LLC fees and all of that. And uh, I guess I assumed that eventually that company was dissolved, but I wasn't a part of that. Got it. Two questions as we look back on this experience, as you look back on it. Uh, my first one is is related specifically to the deal itself. So, you know, selling five companies in, uh, with the same closing day, all the different buyers, um, as you think about that, I'm sure there were hundreds of lessons learned. Does one bubble to the surface for you, one or two, that, that uh, is specifically about the deal mechanics, like how to structure and, and do an exit effectively? What comes to mind as the biggest lesson you learned through that process? You know, I think that something very clear came to mind is that you need to be able to trust your lawyer and understand your lawyer to the point that you understand 100% of the deal because the lawyer won't understand 100% of the deal. Even though the lawyer has written the paperwork that you're going to sign, there are phrases and assets and sections of that that the lawyer's relying on you. And so I think the one thing that really I would stress to people is don't trust the lawyers to understand the deal. You have to understand the deal. Uh, just because you're going to hire a great lawyer, and we had a great lawyer, someone that I still trust, I just don't think that they understood the deal as well as I did in the end and all of the intricacies. Even though they were doing all five things, I'm sure that there were five paralegals or a team of people helping there because, again, our bill was you know, at the end of the bill was a quarter million dollars to facilitate all of this just for the, that one lawyer. Um, I, I believe very strongly that I was catching stuff that he did not have the ability to catch. Could, you give, could you give us an example, Jim? Like, even if it's kind of minutia, but a very specific example that would help people get a head sense of what you're talking about? Uh, which database goes with which company and which employee would go to which company and who would get paid, you know, so we did have some, a situation where payouts would happen over time. Um, there were some tax issues there that we wanted to make sure. Uh, 
I didn't want to get paid and then pay my ex-wife. I wanted my ex-wife to get paid directly so that there would be no tax implications for me. You know, a lot of different little things like that. I don't think that my lawyer, see, my lawyer wasn't talking to the divorce lawyer. Only I was talking to the divorce lawyer. So I think that just in any situation, I understand my situation was you know, specific. I think you need to be the one that's talking to the CPA to the divorce lawyer, to a tax attorney that's going to be advising you on the tax implications of the sale. And the tax attorney and the sales attorney shouldn't be the same attorney because that's a very different skill set. That should be a separate firm, probably. Um, you know, in the end, my tax attorney ended up giving me the most important advice on. You know, if you structure the deal slightly differently, you're going to make less, but you'll make more because the taxes will be less. Such a you know? such a good point. You know, I, I can't remember. I think it it comes from Warren Buffett, but I can remember uh, at some point along the way. I think it was Buffett who wrote in one of his annual letters his description of kind of his negotiation stance, and he and he and he talked about. And I've always remembered this as a lesson that you know lawyers don't negotiate deals; they paper contracts. You as a business person negotiate the deal. You, you negotiate the deal points and deal terms in plain English on one piece of paper so everybody understands what the deal terms are. So many of us as entrepreneurs make the mistake of, you know, talking in generalities with a business partner and then saying, oh, we'll let the lawyers negotiate all the details because we're big picture people. But in reality... If you don't negotiate the details, as you're just saying, Jim, um, I think you're going to shoot yourself in the foot. The lawyers paper the details you tell them to paper. And the CPA is the same way. So just remember that the CPA's job is to tell you what happened in the past, not help you with the future. And so you need to have a very, very specific financial advisor who probably has a CPA, but is an expert in helping you plan for the future as opposed to telling you what happened in the past. So, Most accountants' job is to be a financial historian. Such such great advice. Well, last question, Jim. Uh, as you think about the long arc of history and you go all the way back to when you you know started the business, you got yourself $10 million in debt, which is, again, an amazing story. Like, if you had it to do over again, um, including bringing in the CEO, the venture capital money, the whole thing. What, may, what might you do differently if you had the whole thing to do over again? Oh, gosh. I don't think we have enough time. I would have done every single thing differently. You know, I would not have had a partner in the beginning. Uh, I ended up having a fallout with him, which is a whole other show. And he was my best friend. We were uh, best men in each other's weddings. And now we don't speak to each other at all. Um, this I is would Doug. Not, yeah, Doug, exactly. Um, I would not, you know, Fred, this is an amazing story. Fred came to Atlanta. He's the billionaire that brought in help, so much help, but then didn't help us raise the money as he said he would. He, uh, came to Atlanta. We took him to the country club. My parents were there. Doug's parents were there. We all sat around and had dinner with him. And he left. And after dinner, we went around the table and every person voted. And I went to my mother and I was like, Mom, do you trust him? My mother said, no. Mom, do you think we should do business with him? My mother said, yes. Dad, do you trust him? No. Should I do business with him? Yes. Every single person at the table, John, said, 
We don't trust him. It smells funny. But we were all in awe that this guy was even contemplating helping us. And so we went into business with him anyway. Um, we were all stupid. We all knew better than that, you know. But we were so enamored with the fact that we were in bed with someone famous that uh, we didn't care if he was using a condom or not, you know. And so just stupid. I, again, John, I could go on for the, another hour telling you about mistakes. Uh, don't ever spend money that you don't already have in the bank, right? I'm much a big proponent now of growing slow internally over growing quickly with someone else's money. I'm not a big fan of venture capital anymore. I don't really like venture capitalists. It's not my cup of tea. And I recommend that you don't go that route. I would rather be small than be part of a big VC held company. Um, don't do angels that you know. I don't, I, I still raise money for a living. This is, you know, there's a lot of other things I've done since then. I don't go to anyone that I know to raise angel money anymore. I'll only take your money if I don't know you, you know. I've just messed up too many friendships and relationships by taking your money and then um, having to call you and tell you that we didn't make sales this quarter, you know. So uh, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to lose any more friends because of business. Um Play, oh, here's here's my number one advice, John. Let's wrap it up with this. Don't start a business that you haven't already figured out how to sell. So I now think about the exit before I figure out how I'm going to market the, the new business in the first place. If I can't figure out how to sell it, I don't want to start it. Well, if that isn't a good way to enter an interview, I don't know what is, Jim. We're, we're... I'm sorry. I'll tell you another story, and we'll end on that. Uh, I don't have one in mind. I was just saying that. But, uh, well, tell us, tell us advice, what you though. It's good advice. Figure out how you're going to sell it as part of your business plan, planning, strategy, planning at the beginning. Tell us what you're up to now. Where can people reach you? What's, what are your new projects? That sort of stuff. Well, I do a lot of raising money for businesses, so I just raised money uh, for a brand name uh, comedy club that you see on the A&E network all the time. Just raised a bunch of money for them and just raised a bunch of money for a real estate app that you might be using uh, a year from now. I have a radio show of my own. I'm on 12 AM FM stations around the country. I have a McGraw-Hill best-selling book that came out about four years ago that still sells well called School for Startups. And this is it. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say School for Startups. Definitely check that out. It's a great book and, and people should take a look at it. Yeah, let me tell you very briefly what it's about. So I started, I became a professor right after I sold this business. And I bet my first class that I could start a business that semester, make it cash flow positive that semester, repay all startup capital that semester, and they got to choose the country and the industry that I would start the business in. I made that bet 12 semesters in a row, never lost the bet, started 12 businesses around the world, and the the book School for Startups tells the story of those 12 businesses. Love it. Love it. Anytime you can bring real life examples to students about how to, how to, how to approach a business case is, uh, is fantastic. So that's School for Startups um, available on Amazon and wherever you buy books. Yep. Um, Jim Beach, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been fun.
Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.